Amen. Thank you, brother. Take your Bibles this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As always, if you're not carrying a Bible, and you should be, if you're not carrying a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, which I encourage you to follow along. 1 Corinthians 13. We'll read the entire chapter this morning. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope. Love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father God, we're so thankful for your word. I pray now for the filling of your Holy Spirit as, uh, as we tackle it. I pray for that filling for myself, that, Lord, you would help me to preach uh, rightly and clearly and accurately. I pray there be nothing in my heart or life that's, uh, that would hinder my preaching today and that you just use this time. May I say what ought to be said and nothing more. And then I pray, Lord, for the filling of the Holy Spirit on every person in this room, that they might have ears to hear. Lord, some here today may just need this particular passage, and I pray, if that's the case, that you'll apply it to their heart as only you can. May no one even hear my words today. May they hear the clear voice of the Holy Spirit of God teaching, and uh, may they respond. Teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in between series here now. We have finally concluded our series in Mark, and so... We're just going to do a few different things for a while, some short things, some standalone things. And this morning I want to do just kind of a completely different sermon than I would normally do. Uh, kind of a question and answer type thing. From time to time, people will ask questions about the faith to me. Some of them can be answered in a sentence. Uh, and if that's the case, and if I know the answer, which I don't always, uh, I'll at least try to give it on the spot. Sometimes, however, those questions are a little bit deeper and require a little study and, and a little bit more of a detailed answer, and I'll usually say, you know, I'll get back to you on that. Well, not very long ago, our brother Matthew, is Matthew in here somewhere? There he is back there. Our brother Matthew came to me, and he, he mentioned that he had been in a conversation with another believer, and uh, that individual had declared to Matt that there is no biblical truth in the Bible regarding the Trinity. Is that correct? Wasn't that basically the, the gist of it? And so his question revolved around what is the evidence for the Trinity. 
And uh, does the Bible teach that God is a trinity? And if so, where are the passages that might go to for that? And then shortly thereafter, our brother Jason, and he's not here this morning, right? He's home with his, with his son, yeah. So we'll get this to him and let him listen to this. But sometime after that, Jason came to me after the service. And uh, he told me that in his professional work, he's a psychologist, right? His professional work with troubled individuals, he finds that many today just simply don't have any hope. And so he asked me, is there anything in the Bible that he could share with people in those situations concerning hope? And I may be paraphrasing their two questions just a little bit, but I think I've got the gist of, of them both. And I want to tackle them both today. The first one I won't spend as much time on, Brother Matthew, because I think we can answer it a little bit quicker uh, just by looking pretty much at some relevant passages, making a few comments and letting the Scriptures speak. I'm going to do the same thing with the second question as well. But then I want to delve a little deeper into that one. Where is hope? And So that's where we're going to go this morning. It almost like seems like you're getting two sermons for the price of one today. So see, aren't you glad you came? We'll talk first of all this morning about what does the Bible teach about the Trinity. Does the Bible teach that God is a Trinity? And we have to start, first of all, by looking at our own statement of faith. Shouldn't we look there? That's what we have said we believe about this. It's on our website. It's, it's in print. You can get it if you need it. Our, website, or our statement of faith says this. It says, we believe there is one and only one living and true God, and that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it lists several supporting passages. And so as I was studying for this, I looked up those passages. And I must confess that I was mildly dismayed that we have such poor evidence for what we said in that statement there. We do have some verses there, but I think we could have done better. We have Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 2 that says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. First Corinthians chapter 8 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom... We live. And finally, Titus chapter 2, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are the verses we have there. Not very good, are they? No. They do speak to the importance of worshiping God and God alone. And they do speak to the deity of Christ, at least a little bit, putting him on the same level with the Father. But I think we could have done better. And I think we're going to have to reevaluate that a little bit. There's other relevant passages with respect to this which would have been better. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4 speaks of the unity of the Godhead, the, the oneness of the Godhead. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then we go to Matthew chapter 28, and we get very clear understanding and teaching about the three uh, members of that Godhead. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 and verse number 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And, of course, we know that passage is talking about Jesus Christ and equating him as God. Second Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Why is my voice getting louder and softer and louder and softer? Huh? No, not really. <laughs> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That was Paul's great benediction there in Second Corinthians chapter 13, which mentions all three members of the Godhead. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 6, speaking of Jesus Christ, says that he, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
we go to Matthew chapter 3 and we read about the baptism of Jesus, we see all three members of the Trinity are mentioned there. The Father spoke from heaven, the Son was baptized, and the Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible points out that that is the first clear expression of the concept of the Trinity in the Bible uh, there in Matthew chapter 3. And it is true that the majority of arguments we would look at come from the New Testament, but I, I, I personally think one of the most compelling arguments really comes from the Old Testament. There might be some, some discussion about this, but, but I think it's there. Uh, and that's in uh, what I think is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I've mentioned before that that's one of the most important, if not the most important verse in the Bible. Because if it is true, then everything else in the Bible makes sense. And if we can't accept that verse, then nothing else makes sense. With respect to what we're talking about this morning... This matter of the Trinity, in the beginning, God does give us some help. Because that word God is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it is plural. In the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth. Charles Ryrie, again, in his study Bible says, he says it may be viewed, that verse, even though there's discussion about what that means, the plurality of, of that word, he says it at least allows for the New Testament revelation of the triunity of the Godhead. And then further on in that same chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see this. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Our image, our likeness, let us make man. And so again, plurality. Now, don't get me wrong. There's none of us in this room that can get our brains completely around this. The Trinity is an impossible concept for us to totally comprehend. It's God. It's a God thing. But when we take all these verses together, I think we can conclude this. There is only one God, but he does exist in three persons. And the three persons making up the Godhead and which are described as co-equal in the Bible are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I realize this, the doctrine of the Trinity is not an unimportant thing. It's not trivial. It matters what we believe about this. To not believe this truth is to not believe that Jesus Christ is God. And that is central to our salvation. Just listen to what he said in John chapter 8 and verse number 24. He said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That word he in every English translation you can pick up, I believe you'll find that word he is in italics because it doesn't exist. It's implied, the translators at least thought it was implied uh, in that particular verse, but that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And if you don't think that's clear, he used it a little bit further. He made the same statement a little bit further down in verse number 58 when he very plainly said before Abraham was, I am. He was declaring himself to be God in those verses. And he plainly said, if you don't believe that, you will die in your sins. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is not trivial. I realize it's politically correct to uh, believe that all belief systems are on an Equal footing, I know that. All religions worship the same God, no matter what you might call them, is something that you hear all the time. 
coexist bumper stickers appear on people's cars more and more. But let me share a little secret with you. Politically correct is almost always biblically corrupt. Almost always. The fact is, all religions do not worship the same God. The God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Jehovah's Witnesses is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Mormons is not the God of the Bible. Larson, in his classic book, Larson's Book of Cults, has this to say. He says, the Trinity is seen as a demonic doctrine to the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Holy Spirit is robbed of his personality, and Jesus is stripped of his deity. Their New World Translation renders John 1.1, the word was a God, introducing the witness belief that Christ, the archangel Michael, was created by Jehovah. The appearance of Jesus on earth was not an incarnation, but an example of human perfection in response to Jehovah's moral law. Witnesses do not consider Christ to be eternal God, the creator of the universe, and our great high priest, as declared in Hebrews and Colossians. Another source says about Mormons, it says, Mormons believe that God has a physical flesh and bones, eternal, perfect body. Men have the potential to become gods as well. Jesus is God's literal son, a separate being from God the Father and the elder brother of men. The Holy Spirit is also a separate being from God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit is regarded as an impersonal power or spirit being. These three separate beings are one only in their purpose, and therefore they make up the Godhead. Larson goes on and gives more insight into the Mormon belief when he, he says this. He says, the most famous of all Mormon aphorisms declares, quote, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may become, end quote. God himself was once procreated in another world, and now humans may aspire to the status of procreator that he has obtained. These things are important. Fundamental, evangelical, biblical understanding of the Trinity is this. We believe in one holy, almighty God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-eternal in being, co-identical in nature, co-equal in power and glory, each with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Hope that answered your question, brother. If it doesn't, we'll talk later. But let's move on to the second question, because I think you'll see, if we look at the second question, that they actually relate, in a way. The second question had to do with hope. Does the Bible give us any reason for hope? And so let me give you, first of all, some scripture. I'm just going to read some scripture, no explanation, and I think that it doesn't require explanation. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. For in you, O Lord, I hope you will hear, O Lord, my God. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Those were all from the Psalms, every one of those. Lamentations chapter 3, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Romans chapter 15, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. 1 Peter chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Where is hope? Is there anything in which we can hope? Clearly that little smattering of verses tells us that there is abundant reason for help. The the word of God affirms it. And that was a far cry from the the, the totality of references in the Bible related to hope. I just did a quick little search of my Bible software at home and found 134 verses contain the word hope. 143 times in those 134 verses hope is mentioned. So certainly, there's a lot in the Bible about hope. But I'm guessing that's not what Jason was looking for. I'm guessing that Jason was looking for a little bit more than that. He didn't just want verses to quote. Because the fact is, a certain a person who is in deep depression or reeling from the hopelessness that our culture uh, pervades so many people in our culture today, I, that might provide some help to quote verses like that. But I think he wanted something else. I think he wanted a clearer answer. I think he wanted something that I see. And, and you, you may think I'm nuts here, but I think I see this in the text that we read this morning. The very last verse, 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And now abide faith, hope, love. Let me talk to you for the moments that remain on the only place we can find hope. The only place we can find hope. I I read this on the the Centers for Disease Control site. They said this, suicide. Suicide is a serious public health problem that affects many young people. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for youth between the ages of 10 and 24 and results in approximately 4,600 lives lost each year. This is just talking about America. Deaths from youth suicide are only part of the problem. More young people survive suicide attempts than actually die. A nationwide survey of high school students in the United States found that 16% of students reported seriously considering suicide. 13% reported creating a plan and 8% reported trying to take their own life in the 12 months preceding the survey. Each year, approximately 157,000 youth between the ages of 10 and 24 are treated in emergency departments across the U.S. for self-inflicted injuries. 157,000 each year. Suicide among teens and young adults has nearly tripled since the 1940s. Suicide affects all youth. But some groups are at higher risk than others. Boys are more likely than girls to die from suicide. Of the reported suicides in the 10 to 24 age group, 81% of the deaths were males. 19% were females. Girls, however, are more likely to report attempting suicide than boys. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why a person might fall into one of those groups, considering or attempting take their own life. There are medical issues, health issues, mental health issues, all those kind of things. I I, I don't pretend to be talking about those today. 
I am not a doctor, and I don't pretend to be. But one of the reasons people reach such a point, and one of the reasons 4,600 young lives are lost each year to suicide, is a feeling that they have nothing to live for, that all is hopelessness, that we're here for a few minutes, and then we die. And there's nothing else in which to hope. Kids today are taught that they come from nothing. They are simply animals with no eternal significance. They have only a few short years in which to live a meaningless life, and then they die. Kids today are encouraged to study and prepare for a life of labor that leads to less and less opportunity in our day and in our culture than we used to have. And then they die. Shakespeare's Macbeth described the hopelessness many feel about this life. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Many people feel that way today. Stephen Hawking just died not very long ago. One of his final messages to mankind was a warning of its impending extinction. Hopelessness. Now, interestingly, you might find this strange, but I think the Bible agrees with Shakespeare. And I think the Bible agrees with Hawking. Uh, at least, when we consider their perspective, both Macbeth and Stephen Hawking spoke from the perspective of unbelief. And if that is the perspective in which one lives, they are indeed hopeless. And there is indeed no hope. But, and this is such an important part, there is another perspective. There is a right perspective. Our text says there is reason for hope. Our text says that hope remains. It abides. It is always there. Those of you who have come here very long know that I'm a great fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. I just, I just think his writing is brilliant. His Lord of the Rings trilogy is brilliant. And I think that the movie adaptations of it are equally brilliant. And uh, as I was pondering this topic of hope, I was reminded of a scene uh, in, in one of those movies. As a matter of fact, I looked it up on YouTube just so I could watch it again. You re- may remember that the forces of good were s- facing a, a battle against the forces of evil, the seemingly, overwhelmingly superior forces of evil. And the battle was to happen on the next day. And our hero, Aragorn, the hero of the, of the whole series, was trying to rouse his troops, and he walked along, and he saw a young boy standing there with a sword. He looked like he was about 13. And he asked the boy something. I can't remember what he asked him, but then the, the boy said to him, he said, the men are saying that we will not live out the night. They say that it is hopeless. And Aragorn looked at him and drew in real closely to him, took the sword out of his hand and looked at it a little bit, and then he knelt down in front of him, and he looked him in the eyes, and he said, There is always hope. And I say to you this morning, my friend, no matter where you are with respect to this conversation, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you have considered, no matter how you're feeling, no matter what you've been taught or led to believe by the hopeless worldview of our culture, there's always hope. But that hope can only be found in faith. Only. I think that's key. I think that's why Paul used the order that he used in his text. Faith, then hope, 
than love. I know his primary topic in this passage is love, and when I read this passage, you probably thought well, that's what we were going to talk about today. I'm ignoring entirely his primary passage. I just want to concentrate on those words, faith, then hope, then love, because I believe that order is significant. Faith is the foundation of hope and love. Without faith, there is no hope, and there can be no love. That triad, faith, hope, and love, it's seen several times in the New Testament. In Galatians, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. All of them are seen there. Colossians chapter 1, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. First Thessalonians 1.3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. First Thessalonians 5.8, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. And so I think Paul's order in the text is significant. Faith and hope and love, there's a relationship there. You have to have faith first. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of hope and love. And without faith, there is no hope and there can be no love. Isn't that what the songwriter said? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no hope. Without faith in Christ, there is no hope. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All, period, other, period, ground, period, is sinking sand. Only Christ. Only Christ. And only faith in Christ brings hope. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse number 28, The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. For the unbeliever, there is no hope. Proverbs eleven seven: when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. For those without faith, there is no hope. And Paul made these truths extremely plain in his writings. He reminded the, the Ephesians about their state before they came to Christ. He said that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And he reminds the Thessalonians in his letter to them that all those who die outside of Christ have no hope. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So now abide faith, hope, and love. Our faith in Christ is the foundation of our hope. That's why... Colossians says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. So is there hope? Yes. Where is there hope? In Jesus. And in our faith in him. Is there hope anywhere else? No. So what? If if Brother Phil was sitting here this morning, Brother Phil Ross, he would say, so what? What is the application? How do I apply that to my life? And I would like to suggest two applications of this. First of all, if you're struggling, if you're one of those who feels hopeless, if you're one of those who struggles with those kinds of things, let me tell you, as Aragorn told his young soldier, there is always hope. There is always hope. 
but it's not going to be found in your career. It's not going to be found in your relationships on this earth. It's not going to be found in wealth or in fame. It's not going to be found through education or degrees. It will never be found in sports or physical accomplishment. It's not known of or spoken of in the icons of our culture. It is only to be found in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must believe that he is and that he died for you. If you're the one who might be harboring thoughts of hopelessness, will you not admit today that if you continue down that road, your life will end the same way it was lived? Hopeless. It will be the life that Macbeth described. Hopeless, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. But you can change that. You can come to Jesus today. I love the old gospel song that says, I can't take a heart that's broken and make it over again. But I know a man who can. I can't take a soul that's sin-sick and wash it white as the snow. But I know a man who can. Some call him Savior, the Redeemer of all men. I call him Jesus, for he's my dearest friend. If you feel that no one loves you, your life is out of hand. I know a man who can. You'll find hope when you turn to him in faith. So that's the first application. Come to Jesus. If you haven't done it yet, come to Jesus and find hope. But there's a second application, and that's for those of us who are Christians, those of us who have already been saved, those of us who have hope because we have faith in Jesus Christ. We know the truth. And I think the best way I can describe this application is to tell a story. It's a story from the Old Testament. It's a story that happened in the book of Second Kings. You can read about it there in Second Kings 6 and 7. I won't have you turn there because we don't have time. Let me just summarize. It happened during the time of Elisha, the prophet. And you remember the story. The Syrian army had besieged the city of Samaria. For a long and protracted time, that army had surrounded them, and no one could get in and no one could get out until the supplies in the city were destroyed and gone. It was a hopeless, it was a dire situation. So bleak was that situation that those uh, passages in the Bible tell us that the people were actually eating their own children. That's how hopeless it had become. There was no hope. But then God intervened. God intervened, as he always does. The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. The entire Syrian army was defeated by God. They were removed entirely from the picture. There was no army. But the people in the city didn't know that. They didn't know that at all. They remained in the city, though their enemy was defeated and destroyed, mired in hopelessness. Now, at the same time all this was going on, there were four lepers. Four lepers who weren't allowed to live in the city, so they were living outside the city walls. They, too, were starving. And in desperation, they decided that they would surrender themselves to the Syrians. They thought to themselves, we're, we're dead men anyway. What's the worst that's going to happen to us? So they kill us. It just happens a few days earlier than it would by our starving to death. And so they headed 
to where they thought the army was, and of course it wasn't there. All the supplies were there, the tents, the supplies. There was a long trail of scattered debris marking where they had fled. The army had fled, but there was no army. And overjoyed and overwhelmed at what they saw, they went from tent to tent, gorging themselves on the supplies and the provision, their hopelessness replaced with hope. But then they looked at each other. They looked at each other and they said something that every one of us as Christians ought to have circled in our Bibles. Every one of us ought to remember and memorize. They said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Or as the New Living Translation renders it, this is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. Come on, let's go back and tell the people. Is there hope? Yes. Where is their hope? In Jesus and in our faith in him. Is it anywhere else? No. So what then is the application to those of us who have already found that hope in Christ? This is a day of good news. Come on. Let's go and tell the people. Tell them about Jesus. Let's practice it right now. Lean over to the person next to you right now and just whisper in their ear, there is hope. In Jesus, it is not hopeless. Do that right now. And then do it again when we sing in just a moment. There might be somebody here who really does need that. And so when we sing in just a moment, maybe you need to lean over to them and say, you know what, if you want to step out, I'll go with you. You can find hope. Every day until Jesus comes, brothers and sisters, let us tell the people there is hope. There is always hope. And that hope is only found in Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the encouragement of it. We're thankful for the simple truth of it. Lord, our world knows nothing of this. Our culture knows nothing of this. Other faiths and religions know nothing of this. And yet, Father, we know it. We have the Bible. We know the truth. You have blessed us with that. And you have given us this wonderful opportunity to share your hope. And so I pray today. I pray, first of all, Father, if there's even one here today who feels... Uh, in some, some way, some level of hopelessness and who needs that encouragement. I pray today, Father, you'd touch their heart. And I pray they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd overcome that. And I pray, Father, they'd overcome that by trusting in you. There might be some here who don't know you as Savior. I pray today they would. And I pray they'd step out and they'd come and trust Christ. There are folks here who could kneel with them and talk with them and share with them from Scripture how they might know for certain have hope. And then I pray for the Christians here today, Lord. Some of us have just fallen down on this. We've heard from, from some today who are, are, are so uh, on fire for wanting to go and share the gospel with others. But I pray you'd light that same fire in all of us. May we all recognize it's not right. We have good news. We have the source of hope. Let us go and tell the people. Help us to do it, I pray. And if there's any of us who need to surrender our hearts and lives to that anew, help us to do it this day. Pray, Father, that you'd bless the invitation. We give it to you. Help us, all of us, uh, to make whatever decisions we need to make and respond as you would have us to. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.